Welcome to the Non-Aligned Podcast. This is going to be a place to chat about the politics of the Indo-Pacific, inspired by the non-aligned tradition that traces back to the Indonesian city of Bandung. In a time of polarization and major power rivalry, the spirit of Bandung has new importance. We'll talk about the latest developments in Jakarta and other centers, and we'll bring you guests from across the region who have something unique to say about the current moment. My name is Quinton Tembi, coming to you from Singapore, and I'm joined by co-host Mare Supriyatma in Jakarta. This episode, we speak to Jasmine Chia from the Thai Enquirer about the historic protests in Thailand and the free youth movement. Let's get into it. recording. It's 9pm in Singapore, it's 8pm in Jakarta, and it's 8am in DC where it's the day before the US presidential election. So it seems like as good a moment in history as any to launch this podcast at a time where I think the US is averaging almost 100,000 new coronavirus cases a day as they attempt to, to hold this uh, highly polarized election and as they push up on I think 10 million cases uh, coronavirus cases nationally we're also recording at a moment in which there's rolling and building protests in Thailand where the spell of invincibility of the the monarchy seems to have been broken and uh, at a moment when there's been protests and serious unrest across Indonesia after a jobs law that's been highly criticized by unions and, la- and labor activists and, and the like. And I'm here with Made Supriyatma, who's in Jakarta, and is following the protests as closely as anyone. Yeah, well, this is a, a protest uh, against the new law. It's called Omnibus Law. But... Um, uh, well, uh, against what people believe, that it will be huge protests, but actually it's just small protests. And it's a little riot in downtown Jakarta, uh, probably two weeks ago. But then a report just uncovered that, uh, that the riot was not instigated by the uh, protesters, but instead a group of people we don't know who, but the, I think a local TV, uh, Narasi TV, a news station, got a very, very good report assembling all of the uh, images from social media, from uh, CCTV, and then shown how this, uh, uh, what the arsonist uh, working to uh, Burned uh, several subway station. This is this is a very new to Indonesia, I think, but it's not not really new for uh, New York Times readers or something, because for quite some times New York Times had this uh, did this kind of a reporting. Uh, but it's amazing that that the Indonesian media pick up that kind of methods. Uh, 
to investigate what behind and it's a very rich data actually out there if we want to work yeah on. i think that yeah. that's the first time we've seen the indonesian media really get into open right. source mm-hmm. uh you know investigations mm-hmm. bellingcat style and what what did they did they find anything that clarifies who was behind i think it was the burning of the um the Bundaran Hai mm-hmm. bus mm-hmm. bus station, mm-hmm. bus station and MRT station. Yeah, well, I, I think I think uh, they could identify the the person. I think you you can have a very good idea on who they are, and then uh, 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 they can identify the f- the faces of the uh, arsonist. The writers, but uh, at the same time, when we you go to the police, you know the response of the police is very meek. Um, they only said, "Well, we are investigating that. We haven't determined who they are, and something like that." Is as if they are refused all of the report. So this kind of thing, this kind of behavior, again strengthened the suspicion. Um, of the police against the police, suspicions against the uh, the government that they are actually behind of this uh, all of this uh, arsons and yeah. Yeah, this is always what makes me anxious right. about uh, you know commentators that rush to to assess or, or even rationalize um, you know acts of mm-hmm. of property destruction or violence in the middle of something so chaotic because. There's mm-hmm. a parallel even in mm-hmm. the U.S. case recently with the aftermath of the George, George Floyd killing when I think I'm right to say that it came out, it was confirmed mm-hmm. uh, subsequently that that uh, one of the f- first acts of um, property destruction in Minneapolis that helped to kick off mm-hmm. local, um, you know, further acts uh, locally was done by someone from mm-hmm. from a far right group that, who was seek, who was all dressed up you know dressed up in black block and seeking to uh, just provoke people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's correct. That the precinct one in Minnesota, the, the Minneapolis uh, police headquarters, I guess. Um, yeah, it was done by a far right extremists and. And here in Indonesia, I think it's pretty clear all of these people are wearing black shirts and um, I think they cover their faces and uh, yeah, uh, it, it, they have a very, very good uh, coordination among, among, among themselves. So uh, that this is not, uh, yeah, if it is, it's, it's really easy to, because I have uh, some experience to uh, talk and interview some anarchists in Indonesia. I don't think they are um, in the way that they they clothes they they uh, and in the way that they communicate, getting with each other. I don't see that kind of uh, gestures or language, uh, body language code that they right. usually use as anarchists among these people. Yeah. Right. So they didn't look like the the kinds of Indonesian anarchists you're familiar with? I don't 
think so. Yeah, it's 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 very. I think it's a from different group. We don't know who they are. Oh yeah, I wanted to ask you about your uh, a recent post you made on Facebook because you made a, a very modest proposal uh, relating to the U.S. Mm-hmm. elections and. It's typical around election time in the U.S. for, uh, you know, s- s- one side of the politics or the other to to have people starting to say things like, if um, if so and so wins, I'm going to leave the country. Well, y- you made a proposal that Trump could leave the country if he loses, and that he could, uh, in mm-hmm. fact, go to Indonesia. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a, that's a kind of a, no. It's just a, it's a kind of a mockery or a sarcasm towards uh, Indonesian elites, you know, especially uh, a politician named Palizon and uh, Haritan Wijaya is a media mogul in Indonesia. They are especially to uh, Haritan Wijaya because he is a media mogul. He owns several uh, media, uh, uh, like, uh, uh, and I think it's MNC Group, and uh, he owns uh, RCTI and several TV stations, and also some newspapers, um, also under his uh, under his ownership. Uh, yeah, and I, I'm quite uh, today when I I, I uh, opened New Yorkers, I found a a, an, a very interesting articles about what will Trump do if he lost uh, if he loses this elections, uh, and one of the a lot of uh, people that they interviewed in there say that he he might want to leave the country. Because this is the this is the only thing that uh, is viable for him, because he has a lot of lawsuits and he lost he has a lot of he may end up in jail, so just like other authoritarian or other dictators, uh, they after they lost power they they just go uh, exiling themselves to go to other countries, and as you know that Trump has uh, some. Uh, properties outside the U.S. and he can go anywhere else he can, uh, where he likes, and then uh, what is that? That I, I, I. It reminds me of the, that piece that I wrote uh, probably a week ago. <laughs> I don't remember even about that. Then uh, invite him to go to Indonesia because you know he has he will have uh, two hotels that is being built mm-hmm. one in Bali and one in Lido uh, near Bogor uh, outside Jakarta and then I think uh, uh, Jokowi government is already prepared for that he built a highway uh, that passed Lido that passed of his uh, property not actually his property this uh, Haritanus uh property but it will they will uh 
put the Trump name in there, the Trump brand in there, so it will become a Trump Hotel, six stars <laughs> uh, Trump hotels. <laughs> you know that uh, with Trump is everything is always be big or is always being uh, inflated, <laughs> and a six star hotels, and then uh, what is that uh, amusement? I park think you make too. a very yeah. compelling case, Bali and. Bogor are nice places to live. I think you also yeah. pointed out Indonesia has the kind of the nightlife and the uh, pageant contest do, that, do, that do Trump you, likes uh, also. Uh, do you think so? I don't think so. Uh, do you think he wants to live in a shithole? Well, country? he would classify Indonesia so? that way. I, I guess <laughs> I think any anywhere outside of. Yeah, he did. He needs to well uh, look. This this is a guy who, as far as I know, you know, who don't love art, you know, who don't read. All of his book uh, being written by somebody else, you know, and then who knows nothing about uh, nature. For example, I have a very very little interest to see how the world works except for himself and you know it's just it's take for example a very very simple things like when when he talk about uh, preventing forest fires why don't you rack all of this uh, old uh, uh, what is that old leaves dry leaves and and branches from the from the forest floor Th- that that actually he said you know, it, this is this guy. I don't think I don't think he ever have take a walk <laughs> <laughs> to the woods and see how the nature's work. Never ever do that in entire of his life. Well, that gets to uh, another mystery about Trump because he doesn't seem to do any exercise at all. Yet uh, I was noticing no exercise. Yes, yeah. The only food that he knows is uh, hamburgers and steak. Right, but I noticed that today, <laughs> Sunday in the US, he did five back-to-back uh, rallies in one uh-huh. day. And it just struck uh-huh. me how it points to how unpredictable this election has been in the US because Trump had COVID only not even a month ago, I think. And... Mm-hmm. And, you know, we thought it could be the end for him. And now, in fact, you know, it's completely turned around in that he, he, he you know, probably does have some immunity so he can just take these risks. Uh, well, it's for me, it's a very, 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 very simple to answer that. You know, it's you, uh, what you call, he got a boost from all of the medicines. You know, what did, what did it take? You know, I think I think he got injected every day. <laughs> it certainly seems like he's pumped up on something. He's just like a machine. There's a pump up so something. Yeah, it's uh, like uh, what you call it. What you call it? Uh, uh, I think one one of one of us a medicine. I think uh, uh, yeah, it's a pump up uh, that makes him that that affect his. Uh, his emotion, actually. Right, there was yeah. a there was a steroid so, he was on uh, for a while there. Steroid, yeah, yeah. That's that's what I want to say. A steroid, yeah. But uh, uh, let's. I wanted to play a clip that I took from a rally he gave today. But in fact, it turns out it's a clip he was he was um, playing at at 
different rallies, a bunch of them today. And mm -hmm. what struck me is it's just like 2016 in that rhetorically at least, uh, mm -hmm. if people remember, he was running both mm -hmm. to the left and to the right of Hillary Clinton and mm -hmm. particularly to the left on issues like trade and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, and whether he, he followed through is another matter. But uh, this is just an example of that, an example of how he's really in this last stretch been homing in on, uh, on the issue of China. My problem is I voted for NAFTA. I'm supporting NAFTA because I think it is a positive thing to do. And I do not pretend to be an expert on uh, international trade matters. Trade agreements like NAFTA and permanent normal trade relations with China, which forced American workers to compete against people who are making pennies an hour has resulted in the loss of 160,000 jobs. The president is absolutely right when he says that China has been cheating for 25 years and that Bill Clinton didn't do enough about it, George W. Bush didn't do enough about it, Barack Obama didn't do enough about it. The rising China is an incredibly positive development for not only China, but the United States and the rest of the world. Rising China is a positive, positive development. It is in our self-interest that China continue to prosper. We want to see China rise. China's a great nation, and we should hope for the continued expansion. I mean, this is significant to me that this is the main mm -hmm. anti-Biden clip he's playing uh, at his rallies today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and um, I think, uh, well, this kind of... Uh, if we want to talk about serious things, I think it is a kind this kind of populism uh, that that propel him to uh, to power, which is actually um, well, yeah, America has a problem with China, you know, and then all of the all of his 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 voters actually the white uh, non college uh, graduated uh, voters actually um, enjoy all of the cheap stuff that they bought in Walmart, uh, cheap, uh, uh, what is that, shirts and everything from China. And take that and they have nothing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Take that and everything become expensive and they start to complain again. But then they, he masterfully manipulate that kind of things and then people buy it and then uh, vote it to him and then um, what what's really really good about Trump is that how can he uh, he's part of the elite even though the the cream of the cream in the elite class but he's uh, he is able to say that look, you are becoming like this because of somebody else's fault and because of the elite's faults, and I'm not elites. I'm 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 just a people like you. I'm the outsiders, and uh, he uh, uh, tell that uh, over and over and over and over again. And I think nothing is better to uh, describe how good Trump is than uh, if you look at the COVID. Mm. You know, this he he was he's able to create a narratives that 
we are okay. Don't be afraid of this uh, disease. This this COVID thing is just uh, you know um, uh, a play by the elites, by the doctors, by the uh, 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 the people who want to take your freedom, and people buy it. I I'm not really really surprised he 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 if he can pull the election again that's not that's not uh, um, with a huge consequences uh, uh, for the American uh, people of course but I just uh, uh, read one very interesting uh, election case in the United States uh, Thomas Dewey. In the, in the in 1940s uh, versus Harry Truman. Harry Truman is the incumbent. He's uh, 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 just exactly like what Trump uh, experienced like now. You know, Dewey, Dewey is, uh, uh, was uh, 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 supported by all of the elites and got the endorsement of the many major newspapers and all the polls uh, say that he will uh, won the election by landslide and his message is the uni- unity of the United States and then comes uh, Truman is very very unpopular uh, uh, Democrats from uh, I think Harry Truman is uh, from Texas but he's a right. Democrat He's Southern Democrat. He's a, and he's very, very unpopular and even less popular than, than, than Trump right now. But he's just like Trump, you know, he's going everywhere and uh, giving speech, uh, 200, more than 250 speech from uh, August to October. Can you, can you imagine that? Uh, take any train that he can take, flew every airplane that he can flew, and he was able to pull out the election uh, out of the many that hopes that he that think that he will he will lose, he will lost. But uh, you know, uh, yeah, uh, that are that kind of articles that makes me think uh, that. Trump probably against all of the polls that we have seen, all of the of the modeling that we have seen. If he can pull this election again, that then this is this is really uh, for me is showing you the most cynical part of the politics. You know, <laughs> it's, uh, how can you deceive people? How can you, how can you, how can you moody the water? Uh, that's the truth is not the truth. Everything is based on your interpretation. It just like in academia, you will think that this is like uh, what Foucault, the materiali- materialization of uh, Foucault when he thinks about the truths, everything is relative, you know. You can have alternate facts if you want, and yeah, just defy everything is constructed in inside your brain. I was just gonna say, it does look like it's working. I mean, the if you look at the size of the election rallies and the energy, he does seem to have that late stage momentum with him now. Trump. Yeah. Yeah, and just uh, it just I think I think in the last couple of days, it shows that he's winning. 
It's just exactly like this in the 2016, you know. Just 10 days, yeah, 10 days before the election, he hold a, a huge rallies and a, the only uh, and moving from town to town in, in a state, he can have uh, five seven, uh, to seven rallies in a day. But the only thing right now is that uh, two-thirds of the voters already voted. That mm. makes a difference. Uh, it's not that's not like uh, like in 2016 so i get mm -hmm. the feeling that in a sense trump is in a win-win situation here because if he does pull off a a surprise victory that's his first goal but if he loses even narrowly then there's the option of you know that's front of mind for everyone now of of there being some kind of judicial intervention and and the sort of quote-unquote judicial coup but even if he loses i think trump is because he's got such a cult of personality around him now and a whole far-right mm -hmm. ecosystem uh, media ecosystem he's mm -hmm. very well placed to just run mm -hmm. a kind of uh social movement any kind of insurgent movement for the next four years mm -hmm. uh until until the next election or just to just to play a kind mm -hmm. of um populist spoiler role in the in the american political system oh, well yeah that's that's another possibility but uh, but i think it's uh, it's it's really unlikely if he loses election by a landslide or even even probably in the reasonable uh what is that margin take for example four percent five percent that that reasonable uh um i think the republican party i think it's i still believe that a lot of people are still they, they they are going to trump because it's just um what is that because of this is the marriage of con convenience you know uh they are they 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 goes to trump right right now because he delivers uh, he will do whatever they want because uh, he wants to please the Rep Republican base. But if he lose the election, I think the story becomes very different. People will abandon him, especially the elite, especially the people who are in the Republican Party. Uh, the reason for that is very, very clear from now on. From, from uh, Even if you look, look at the campaign, you know, it's very, very rare that Republican establishment endorse him uh, openly. All of, the, all of the Trumps rely on, during the campaign, is his family members, his children, his, even his... Uh, his, his, his uh, uh, Don Jr.'s girlfriends, yeah, um, yeah. It's all of all of the family member. They take the front page. Not it's not his surrogates. There's no no surrogates for him. Uh, no surrogates from 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 uh, Republican Party. It's not it's not like it's not like uh, the normal election years, which I happen to experience a couple of times in the United States. I can just imagine that the Republican establishment already has its alibis and uh, excuses lined That's up for correct. the post-2016 
That's correct. Era. That's correct. That they already they they already crafting their 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 plan, I guess, from now on. What if he lose? And if they if they lose uh, if they lose uh, the house, if they lose the senate, they have lose a presidency. There's there will be a huge soul searching, and if you go to the to the to the uh, to a bully and at the same time a loser what would you do in 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 the real life people abandon you right people will yeah people will people will uh put any blame every blame that they can they could to you so yeah that that's what we if he loses election especially in a reasonable margin and then republican will say that's okay that's enough we want you lose we won't uh, 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 support you anymore and then the far right which is always there his basis was always there it it will become a fringe movement again it's not it's not become a mainstream like 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 right now because he's because of trump make them bring them to the to the to the mainstream but after this you know after this election i think trump will just i think this is this is what he most afraid of after the election even though if he, i don't think any tv he can get any offer from tv to have a uh, uh, become a to have his own t- show for example yeah it's a lot of people like uh, right that even 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 people speculate that no major publication will ever offer him a contract like Barack Obama got, you know, Barack Obama and and Michelle got sixty uh, million dollars for their auto uh, for their right. war, right? But I don't think, yeah, but I don't think any publisher will because because he's such a divisive figure, you know. We will, no, nobody nobody wants to 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 uh, read uh, about him anymore. All right, let's put a bookmark in this uh, in this discussion of the U.S. because we've got Jasmine here, and I think it's probably a good time to bring bring in Jasmine, and um, I'm sure we'll come back to the U.S. So, uh, Jasmine, welcome to the Non-Aligned Podcast. It's great to have you on. You're our first guest, so welcome. Incredible! This is extremely exciting, and this is done out of NUS, or just sort of as an independent project. This is an independent project, so this is something that Marta and I have just been uh, cooking up over the last few weeks and been thinking about as an interesting side project. But I wanted to get you on because you've been, I think, one of the most interesting people to follow who's writing about the the protests in Thailand. And, uh, and in particular, you've got a new piece out talking about what the protests in Thailand mean for not just the country itself, but for the region. And you even use the term, uh, or you asked the question, um, could there be a, a Southeast Asian spring? So I'm wondering if you could tell us how you see this, the protests in Thailand now, and, and do you think there could be something uh, that spreads from Thailand to the region? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a fascinating and I think a really attractive prospect and one that the activist Nethi Witt has tried to um, 
an idea that the activist Nancy Witt has tried to sell recently. But I think, and Madara will probably agree with me, it's important to think of what mm. ASEAN as a region has always meant, which is that ASEAN as a region has always been sort of this region of non-interference with this recognition that there are all these very different cultures with the recognition that all these authoritarian governments are unwilling to sort of step in and help one another out. Um, and also with this recognition that there's not as much cultural solidarity among Southeast Asians as one might expect in a region of such neighboring countries. Um, I think <laughs> that sort of the Thai perspective on Jakarta or Philippines is that they're just learning about Indonesian Filipino politics now versus having sort of built up some understanding in the region over time, right? And so I don't think that that regional solidarity has ever been cultivated. And so if we're looking at a Southeast Asian spring, I think we're at the beginning phases of something like that, right? Um, but I don't think that it's something that can happen imminently. And that's sort of a function of this regional solidarity that I've talked about, and also a function of the different domestic constraints in different countries. And that was articulated sort of in the article that I wrote. Right. And, and what comes to mind when you think about these protests regionally is the prominence of this uh, so-called milk tea alliance. That might sound like a strange thing to, to people who are not perhaps extremely online and following the sort of hashtag wars on Twitter, as I think uh, some of us are. Uh, can you explain perhaps to people who have no idea what that means, uh, what the milk tea alliance is and how important you think it might be? Sure. So I'll start with its origins, and then I'll go towards its growing significance. Um, its origins are hilarious and just so typical of uh, K-pop Twitter, um, which is basically, there was a Thai star, his name is Bright, he stars on this um, extremely famous TV series about two gay men, uh, and it's really like a regional series, a regional hit. Um, so Bright's girlfriend posted a picture and basically her uh, picture, um, on the picture he commented, you know, you look like a very beautiful Chinese girl. And she was like, no, like a Taiwanese girl. And it set off this gigantic flame war because then all of Bright's Chinese fans were like, how dare you assert that China and Taiwan might be two different entities? And then this was compounded by a series of pictures that Bright accidentally retweeted from a Hong Kong-based journalist, which showed pictures of Hong Kong as a country. And so then there were all these accusations of Bright being sort of um, on the Hong Kong side, uh, Bright being anti-China. And so then his Thai fans stepped in. But obviously that was the genesis of the question. And then it became so much bigger, right? Because then it became a question of all these Chinese keyboard warriors coming out saying, you know, well, Thailand sucks. And then being really surprised by the response of, oh, well, yes, Thailand does suck from Thai, from Thai citizens on Twitter who sort of are not as nationalist, far more leftist than maybe the regular Thai citizen. Um, Hong Kongers really loved seeing this Thai reaction, really loved seeing how stumped the, Thai, uh, the Chinese keyboard warriors were. Um, and so they sort of stepped in in solidarity. And after that, really, Joshua Wong and Nathie Witt came together and declared this milk tea alliance. Um, but this hashtag had been really pushed from the ground up by all these meme makers, both from Thailand and from Hong Kong, from Taiwan as well. 
Um, and so I think what's really interesting about this is sort of twofold, right? First, you have this creation of a new region, really born out of um, resisting Chinese authoritarianism, because Thailand, Hong Kong, and Taiwan have never ever been historically considered within a single um, unit, right? But now you have all these anti-Chinese protest Twitter accounts. I mean, you'll note that one of the key protest leaders um, in the Thai protest recently led the anti-China account for Thailand. Um, that's Francis, who was arrested for on Article 1110 for potentially harming the Queen. Um, and so, you know, really, this has become a new region, totally born from the ground up, um, totally born out of this resistance to a regional hegemon that signifies not just authoritarianism in China, but seems to signify um, alliance with authoritarianisms in Thailand um, and elsewhere. And so I think that this anti-Chinese movement has really become a hallmark of the Thai democracy protests. Yeah, and I think it's it's a hallmark that's been often overlooked in the foreign reporting on the, the protests in Thailand. I wonder if this is the first time we've seen this kind of, uh, you know, cross-country regional solidarity, particularly when it comes to solidarity on an issue like, uh, you know, anti-China or, or criticizing uh, China's policy in the region. Yeah, I think this is attributable to, I would say, two things, right? First, that the Hong Kong protesters have always had this incredibly international outlook. Um, and so they've always stood in solidarity with Belarus, just as they've stood in solidarity with Thailand. Um, and so I think that that has obviously influenced how the Milky Alliance has traveled. And you see that especially as the Thai protests sort of resonate in Hong Kong and there are these Hong Kong protests against Beirut, um, which is really fascinating and incredible to watch. Uh, but I do think the second component of this is just how much um, the online protest and the online zeitgeist is being translated offline. And so initially when the Milk Tea Alliance came to the fore, a lot of people were like, well, this doesn't really do anything meaningful. I mean, even I said that, right? Because China has such extensive influence over the Thai economy, over Thai politics. And so, yes, you clearly have this bottoms-up diplomacy, but it's not going to actually change anything in the region. Um, but then it's it. Yeah, yeah, I have a question, uh, Jasmine. Um, yeah, uh, is it, is it, it's kind of strange for me that this uh, the milk tea alliance is only with the Thai, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. Meanwhile, the anti-Chinese, anti-China uh, sentiment is uh, spreading in the region, actually. You know, the Pakatan, Harap, Pakatan Harapan in Malaysia uh, came to power. Part of their message is uh, because of uh, uh, what is UMNO, uh, got a lot, give a lot to the Chinese. And anti-Chinese sentiment among uh, Malaysian is quite high. Uh, Anti-Chinese, I mean the anti-Chinese government, not anti-Chinese ethnic in in, in, in the case of uh, Pakatan Harapan. I remember that Mahathir gave a speech uh, pointing to a huge project in Johor Bahru and say that, well, uh, what is that? Uh, uh, the prime minister sold this uh, nation to the Chinese government. And also, if I look back uh, in the Indonesian government in, in Indonesian election to, uh, 2019, 
uh, anti-Chinese sentiments quite high, especially from the from the opposition party, and yet this alliance not even considers to include Indonesia or Malaysia in their coalitions. Do, do you do you have any idea why is it happened? Is it like that? Yeah, I have two potential hypotheses. Um, the first, you know, keeping in mind that this is a really bottoms up movement. It wasn't really a question of who was allowed to be included, but who wanted to put their voices in the ring, I think, right? And I think that there has actually been more interaction within the Twitter spheres between Thailand and Hong Kong previously, prior to the Milt Sea Alliance. And that was partly driven by, uh, again, Nathy Witt, who is this huge figure in the pro-democracy um, movement, not just now, but sort of more broadly in the past and his very close friendship with Joshua Wong, um, which has always meant that there has been this amplification and resonance of issues both across Hong Kong and across Thailand, even before the Milti Alliance came together. And so I think that there was this unision of the Twitter spheres that really allowed this hashtag to amplify. And I will say that I don't think that, and one could say it's a language barrier. I don't know if that exists with Indonesia or Philippines. And I think that really only started to exist with Indonesia and the Philippines with the recent hashtags of this month, right? What's happening in Indonesia, what's happening in the Philippines, which haven't been specifically anti-China. But I think it's sort of that um, pre-existing ecosystem of conversation. But potentially my second hypothesis is that in Thailand, the Chinese alliance is extremely closely identified with Ryut's government. And so resisting China is basically resisting our, authority, our authoritarian government at home. That's how the translation works um, in the minds of people who use Milk Tea Alliance. And I don't know if that, and clearly that's the translation in Hong Kong, right? Even more explicitly, the Chinese government is identified with their government at home. Um, and I don't know if that explicit link really does exist in the Philippines or in Indonesia, for example. Um, where, you know, in Indonesia, there are laws limiting Chinese participation in, uh, in government. So I wonder if that's maybe a confounding factor, but obviously you could speak more to the second hypothesis. Mari, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I mean, another hypothesis is that you've got a situation in Indonesia, which Mari can speak more on, where anti-Chinese sentiment is something of a taboo and it tends to be associated with, um, uh, you know, regressive movements. And so, you know, for a, for a progressive labor-based uh, protest movement, like we've seen recently at the start of, start of October um, over the omnibus law in Jakarta and, and across Indonesia, it would be kind of running against uh, type to to take up a kind of any kind of solidarity with with thailand perhaps based on um the issue of china i don't know yeah i think i think we have to uh what is that uh draw um a clear line here between the anti-chinese ethnic chinese sentiment and anti uh, Chinese government or Chinese business uh, sentiment, which is two different things. I think uh, people are, people in Indonesia, I think, uh, know there's a difference. Uh, 
uh, I think ethnic anti-ethnic Chinese sentiment is still uh, uh, there in, within the Indonesian society, but it's it's very interesting that I didn't see any riots, any seri- serious riots after '98. Uh, that's 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 a big big, and then then uh, ethnic Chinese participation in politics is really is quite high actually. And if you see that uh, 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 the the small political party, the, the Indonesian Solidarity Party, is uh, led by a women, a Chinese, and Christian, uh, that that I think uh, reveals some things in in Indonesia. But uh, anti-Chinese business or business interest in Indonesia is quite high, and that's what. Uh, uh, what's that uh, uh, became an issue during the elections, and uh, I think a similar things also uh, happen in Thailand. Um, a prayuth I heard that uh, also associated with the Chinese business in Indonesia. I think a lot of social movements especially in the eastern part of Indonesia where the nickel industries, where the Chinese put a lot of tons of money in there to build uh, industrial estate in uh, small islands in eastern Indonesia. And you see that the, the most, uh, right now the most radical movement, even though it's only local, the most radical movement in Indonesia happened in that in that remote places and nobody pay attention for that actually because it's so far and so remote so far from Jakarta uh, I think uh, yeah what strikes me eventually I, I heard that uh, some activists start talking about building alliance uh, with Thailand and starting using the three fingers uh, symbols I think yeah, we can we can probably under the different name there will be a solidarity with with Thailand as just like uh, you remember you probably remember that in 2019 when there's a commun- anti-corruption protest in Indonesia uh, they got support from Hong Kong for example yeah uh, it starts I think in the very very early pace of uh, uh, cooperation or communication and solidarity. I think, I think that's from Indonesian perspective, yeah. That's, that's really interesting that you mentioned that they got support from Hong Kong because, again, I think it sort of reiterates my point that Hong Kong becomes this um, focal point for internationalism in Asian activism. Um, you know, the conduit for um, the Thai protests uh, obviously, their own aspirations to democracy, and then obviously these anti-corruption protests in Indonesia. But I mean, from my perspective, historically there has not been a lot of looking to the neighbors for either inspiration or solidarity. Right? I think that's definitely true of Thailand, which has its own complexes of what its neighbors mean. Right? This historic rivalry with Myanmar. Um, its own feeling of economic superiority to Laos or Cambodia. Um, but, but there hasn't really been this feeling of like, oh, 
we want to learn from them and want to support them and be like them. Um, so I wonder what your perspective is on, you know, the extent to which Indonesia has looked within Southeast Asia for either inspiration or solidarity for its own protests. Well, that's um, uh, Indonesia always um, think themselves like uh, unique, uh, the the uh, the biggest Muslim country in the world, and then but not when they think that they are moderate, even though in the, in a lot of Indonesia is in, increasingly becomes uh, conservatives. Uh, I think even with Malaysia, there's not a lot of uh, solidarity. I think uh, uh, most Indonesians think that uh, in a negative uh, ways to Malaysia, and which they think that uh, not really, because we have in the in in our history we have the confrontation, right? The confrontation between Sukarno and uh, the British government when the um, uh, they want the Malaysia to become a state, and Indonesia vehemently denied that right and think that that. The, they, they think that they can they can get uh, North Kalimantan to be included to Indonesia. Yeah, that that kind of a, the the history of the past I think uh, make it really hard to uh, build a solidarity even among a civil society between Indonesia and Malaysia. And I think the the gap is even wider with uh, Thai. Or even Myanmar, and uh, well, we have a, a little support for my Myanmar democracy before here in the in, in Indonesia, but it's a very very elitist. Um, and in terms of uh, the support from uh, Hong Kong, for example, that that's also just in form of uh, uh, the letter of solidarity uh, with Indonesia. Something it doesn't mean a lot for the whole movement. Yes, I agree that uh, this is uh, Southeast Asia is a very very complex region. You know, in the past you have a kingdom, you have republics, you have a communist in there, you have a super capitalist like uh, Singapore in there, and it's a very very. You just throw so many different things into one. The only thing that uh, the only interest that makes this. Uh, region come together is that non-interference. You know, um, uh, we are not uh, meddling in other countries' business. So that's that. That's kind of things, I guess. Uh, yeah, hold the region, but at the same time, not really unite the region, and not really build a solidar solidarity because, and every country in the region is, uh, has to compete for. Uh, capital has to compete for uh, has to compete for so many things. It has to compete for resources and uh, yeah, uh, think that they are superior than the other. Like even if you if you if you I don't know whether you're familiar with, uh, or not. Uh, in Indonesia, even a cuisine, for example, has become a big, big issue when Malaysia claims that their that rendang, which is uh, originally from Minangkabau, is their cuisine, and also Singapore, 
uh, for uh, uh, what is that making a, uh, a flower I think I think an orchid uh, which is in Indonesia is called anggrek bulan it's a, a moon orchid become this national flower and then uh, people start questioning that and then uh, become very nationalistic about that so uh, that's a lot of issues in within ASEAN itself well I'm reminded now actually Thailand did come up uh, in uh, in Indonesia after the omnibus protests but the context ironically was not solidarity so much as rivalry I think because the question asked by observers in Jakarta was why have the Indonesian protests not endured as as long as the Thai protests and I don't know if anyone's um, got a good theory of that yet I I mean, just to add on to that, you know, my first in Jakarta were also telling me that a lot of the Thai protest imagery was being used by conservatives um, to sort of chide the Indonesian protesters for their use of violence, right, versus like the super orderly, very peaceful um, Thai protests in comparison. And so, again, sort of that element of regional competition and sort of regional benchmarking that's not necessarily solidarity, which I think is really, um, was, was sort of really surprising for me to hear. Right, kind of like protest shaming or something. Something like that. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, I think that there is both room for change, but also a lot of structural factors that are in the way, right? To mention the structural factors as uh, Mata already has, you know, there's obviously this Existing regional competition, I think in Singapore, it's even clearer where you're trying to establish a national identity in competition with all these other national identities that seem quite similar. And in Thailand, that dynamic manifests as we have this national identity that is so different from all of you that we don't really identify with your politics. And so there are these structural constraints to begin with. But I think maybe two factors um, have been introduced that could change this, right? First of all, the increasing use of digital media to spread protest information. I mean, basically, the free youth movement in Thailand has been entirely digital-based, and it's managed to mobilize masses of people, which is incredible. Um, and it goes to show that, you know, the Arab Spring, people said that was not a Twitter phenomenon. Um, it was very much sort of from the ground up. I think we can say that the Thai Spring is very deeply tied to Twitter, tied to meme culture, <laughs> tied to all these things that young people are deeply plugged into. And I think maybe that could help change this narrative on solidarity. And then I think the second thing is, um, you know, as newer protest leaders come to the fore, and I don't think that this has happened in Indonesia, right? I think in Indonesia, you still see your protests being led by the traditional coalition of trade unions um, and basically people who are working in sort of the employment and the labor sector. I mean, in Hong Kong and Thailand, the protests are really being led by the youth, by students, by high school high school students. And it's much clearer to be able to build that solidarity among people of your generation. Um, and so perhaps maybe with the influx of new protest leaders in Indonesia or elsewhere in Southeast Asia, we'll see more of that solidarity being created as well. How do you see, Jasmine, the, the protests um, playing out in, in Thailand uh, from now? Because it seems like there's been a, a really kind of unprecedented revolutionary mood in the streets 
and the sense that that something uh, you know paradigm shifting is is going to happen, but but then we also hear talk of a, of a military coup and 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 uh, which would make I think thirteen or fourteen coups perhaps in Thailand and and uh, and a sort of return to kind of the military as as the default ordering mechanism um, when there's when there's ever protests or unrest. So how um, hopeful are you and, and what do you think might happen next? Yeah. And so actually of Thai coups, if you include the unsuccessful ones, there have been over 20, which is crazy. Um, I think that there is a real sense of paradigm shift and that is entirely because of the introduction of the monarchy and the question of monarchical reform. Um, and obviously this has been a taboo that has existed for generations in the 70s and 80s with the influx of Marxist ideology, people talked about the monarchy, but they were talking about, you know, dissolution of the monarchy, um, as opposed to here, they're talking about real reform and they're talking about things that they hope to see within the next few years. Um, and I think that that has really shifted the conversation. From, I think, general media consensus, there is it seems like there's three ways out. And so from most progressive to least progressive, um, you know, the most progressive view would be, we actually see um, some concessions from the king, um, which will definitely result in, first of all, the ousting of Bayud, and then hopefully the rewriting of the constitution. But that all hinges on the first point, which is concessions from the king. Um, I think the second route that people see is more likely is that the king holds his ground. There's some change potentially in um, the faces that represent the king. So whether that's through a coup, whether that's through a change in government from you know the Buryut government maybe to uh, another member of Palangkrasharat, another conservative party, maybe even a new party, right? But some sort of change in government that doesn't involve elections. Um, and then the third option, you know, people hope this isn't likely, but it is clearly possible, is that the protests are dissipated through an incredibly violent event, um, which really, again, would come from the top and would be people at the top saying, you know, we're not going to see change for the next five to 10 years or as long as the current people are in power. And so I think that's sort of the spectrum of possibilities. Obviously, there is the possibility that they just wait out the protests and they dissipate. But I think given the sheer momentum, given the anger that the protesters have with the continued arrests, I don't think that that's likely to happen. And it doesn't seem like the government is backing down, given that they issue you know, tens of arrest warrants every single day for protest leaders. And would it be right to, to say that what's different now, perhaps about previous um, protest movements, so the, the red shirts versus yellow shirts in the past, is that now it's not so polarized this in the same way as it is uh, divided along generational lines. And maybe that means uh, that there's sort of a sense of inevitability to, to, this, um, to these developments and, and a kind of shifting, shift in the mood of, um, towards reform. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I actually think that one of the things that people haven't yet brought up in terms of the difference from, you know, 2008, 2010 versus now, right, 
it's not so much that Thai society isn't as polarized because clearly there are conservatives who continue to believe in the value of the monarchy and are offended by everything that's happening now, right? But what's really different from my perspective is that these new protests are relatively leaderless. So in 2008, you had the yellow shirts who were led by Sonti Lim Tong Kun, right? In 2010, you had the red shirt protests, which were led by a red shirt coalition, um, but really led by Taksin. And then in 2014, you had the PDRC, which was led by the Democrat Party. But here, you have a protest movement that, sure, I mean, there are some people who take on the microphones and then they're arrested. But when they're arrested, it doesn't mean anything for the movement. And so I think this sort of non-hierarchical moment that the protests are in is really unique and new and not something that's been seen across Thai history. And I think that's why the government is having such trouble dealing with it, because they're so used to sort of cutting the head off the snake, right? When they see these protests getting too far, they kill the protest leader or exile him. Um, but with these protest movements, you know, they've arrested uh, up to 10 to 15 protest leaders at this point. But it doesn't make a difference because those protest leaders are not funding the movement, nor are they the sole reason why people are coming out. There's this broader discontent that for the first time, the government does not know what to do anything with. And does this amorphous structure also mean it's, it avoids the kind of you know, confrontation, street confrontations that we saw in the past between the, the yellow and the red shirts? And perhaps you can talk about this. Um, I've been reading about the, the use of kind of flash mob style uh, activism, perhaps again another way of, of whether, whether consciously or not avoiding uh, kind of a dangerous showdowns on the streets between between two sides. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of things, the protesters have learned a lot of things both from Thai history and from the world. And so, you know, from the world, from Hong Kong, they've learned to move like water, right? They've learned to really try to surprise policemen. They've learned to not um, be stuck to a single protest site, but to have multiple protest sites in one day to quickly change those protest sites up at the drop of a minute. Um, so clearly there's some learning happening from the world, some diffusion of protest tactics. And then there's also learning from within Thai history, right? That learning of, you know, standing your ground like the red shirts did um, isn't necessarily going to be the most efficient and possibly not the most safe way to protest the government. Um, I think there's also this genuinely new um, energy with the movement, which really draws from the youth. And that's where I think the use, the use of protest slogans come in. Um, I think this new movement has become so incredibly creative that a lot of people are just excited to see uh, what kind of narratives of Thai history will, will come out of it. Um, because you really do have you know, a whole new protest language coming out of people attending the protests and a new way of thinking of Thai history. And so I think because of all that learning, there is this, um, yeah, this new infrastructure for history built on a new language, built on new traditions um, that the protesters are trying to prepare for the future, which I don't think really has to be tied to physical protests in eventuality, right? And I think that's why I mean, one of the questions that has always come up for me is, well, why would you bring the former king into the protests, right? I mean, I grew up in a time when everyone loved the former king, or most people did. Um, and I think that for a lot of conservatives who 
uh, don't like the government. They're like, look, I'm willing to support the protests, but I just don't know why they have to be so shocking with the words that they use. And I think it's difficult to message just how much this protest movement is about creating this long lasting legacy beyond the physical protest of breaking down these national myths, right? And sometimes the way you do that is you have to shock people. And sometimes, you know, the way that you shock people is not going to be polite. Um, but that's how I think the protest tries to live beyond its current iteration and its current form. The other thing perhaps we could we could talk about seeing as we are on the eve on the eve of a of a US election and we we may even uh, all be US politics junkies here is do we, do we want to make a segue to the US um Made, Jasmine anyone I'm happy to I'd be curious to hear what Made thinks about this and what you Quinton think about this as well from you know the non-aligned perspective <laughs> Yeah, I, we talk about it uh, uh, quite a line before you came in. Uh, yeah, I just wonder what is the consequences for uh, Southeast Asia, for China, for example, if uh, if if Trump lost the election or he pull out the election, he won't win the election. Uh, yeah. It must be a huge, huge consequences for us so living here. And what strikes me about these four years of uh, Trump administration is that so many conflicts outside the border of the of a nations, uh, among nations, but so many conflicts inside the the, the nations. Uh, yeah, especially divisions and also people are, are uh, what did that, uh, uh, divided into various camp and the things that in the past is not, it's only a fringe movement or the sideline of politics now becomes uh, at the forefront of politics or something like that. So, uh, yeah, I just wonder probably uh, Quintus also can jump in. What, what, what is the consequences for, for the region, if you may? I suspect what, what will happen if Trump is returned is we see a kind of, you know, we are talking earlier about how he's, Trump's running hard again on, uh, anti on an anti-China platform, which is, you know, in, in part perhaps more rhetoric than substance. But it does, I think, have an effect in terms of of increasing, uh, ratcheting up the sense of polarization in the region. And and, the, and someone said to me recently, a, a journalist uh, based in Singapore, that uh, you know that it's sliding into a cold war when people f begin to feel like they have to pick a side. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't think we're anywhere near a cold war yet but I mean I did notice for example Mike Pompeo um, made that whirlwind visit and visited Jakarta and had a kind of set piece event with the Nadatul Lama youth group and it, what was striking about it was just how superficial the engagement was and uh, it was it was very much a kind of parachuting affair uh, a lot of the senior Muslim leaders weren't there 
so so not particularly um, inclusive or strategic. And then uh, you know the content of his speech was was clearly all a kind of um, you know all a kind of warm up to to deliver a message about China and to and to use I think you know the issues of the human rights issues in China like Xinjiang, but to use them to use them in a kind of clearly instrumental way which i just i can't see as as building any kind of um capital for the u.s in in indonesia so i don't know how it went elsewhere but that's just what i saw in in indonesia in indonesia from the trump regime what i've seen about the u.s election is just how little of an impact and how little outreach there has been from the u.s in thailand um which is quite surprising given, you know, America's historic alliance with Thailand and Thailand's um, increasing uh, ties to China. But I think that, you know, there has been this huge narrative of foreign interference in the current Thai protests, right? And there were these protests in front of the U.S. embassy saying, you know, Americans, take your proxy war elsewhere. and this vision that the U.S. is apparently fighting China through the Thai democracy protesters. So obviously, the U.S. embassy has had to tread with incredible delicacy, um, reaching out to the government's foreign minister for this highly publicized meeting, right? But other than that, other than this thing that was clearly driven by, um, you know, this huge narrative that was false. Um, there has been relatively little outreach from the U.S. And, and that to me has been incredibly surprising. And if anything, it seems as though Germany has been uh, more of a at, at the centre of these protests when it comes to, to foreign uh, countries that, that, are, that are mentioned. Can you explain the German connection? Yeah, so I'll be delicate about this. Um, the current king lives in Germany for most of the year. And there was a constitutional amendment that allowed the king to uh, basically govern the country from Germany. And very recently, there were these Bundestag debates where um, the Green Party MP brought forward this potential issue of a German, a German-based Thai king governing Thailand from Germany as being clearly illegal. Um, and so there were these huge protests in front of the German embassy and a submission of a letter to the German parliament to really say, you know, we believe that our king governs our country from Germany and we believe that he should be not allowed to do that. Um, and the German government did this independent investigation and concluded that um, there was no clear evidence that he was governing the country from Germany. I mean, there is going to be no evidence anyway because constitutionally, the monarchy is not supposed to have a role in Thai politics, which clearly, you know, we all can just make our own assumptions about that. Um, But I think, you know, it hasn't just been Germany that's been involved. There's also been these protests at the Japanese embassy led by the royalists, which were targeted against Koin Chashuan, who is this sort of radical anti-monarchist Thai scholar who's based out of Kyoto University. Um, And then obviously there were those protests at the US embassy. And so I really think, you know, in a mirror to Hong Kong's protests, there's this attempt to internationalize the issue um, and an attempt to bring in these foreign powers 
to sort of legislate the issue for us, um, given that that has happened before in Thai history. And what what do we think about this issue of a coup? Because that's another obvious point of connection, at least in terms of the discussion right now, and um, not just in Thailand, but in but in the US. Uh, there's, you know, it, depending on what, uh, you know, what kind of uh, social media you're exposed to, there's quite a lot of people, particularly on the on the Democrat side, I think, who think that there's a real possibility there could be a, some kind of a, a coup. I think the term used is, is more a coup of a judicial nature than anything else, uh, which is kind of unprecedented to have to think about in the, in the US context. But I'm wondering... Jasmine, what you think of the talk of uh, a coup in in the U.S. from a from a Thai perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think if anything, it exhibits this American provincialism, which is like you know, oh, everything that's happening in the U.S. is the worst thing that's ever happened in history. Um, so, for example, I think the comparisons of Trump uh, at, at, to fascists, right? I think is indicative of that impulse to see things happening in America as sort of extremely exaggerated, I think, from the Thai perspective. Um, and so again, with these coup rumors, you know, Thailand's coups are born out of a very particular infrastructure where the military has always been involved in Thai politics from the very beginning, right? And it is also born out of a democratic politics that has a direct inheritance from a royalist, an absolutist royal monarchy none of which America has. Like, there's absolutely no infrastructure for a coup, <laughs> right? Um, like, the military is supposed to be, you know, non-aligned, and even if they have their partisan preferences, they are actually not allied to any political party. Um, and the military really and truly has never had that role in politics that it's had in all these Southeast Asian countries where you see coups. And so it personally sounds incredibly ridiculous and almost a little bit conceited to be like, oh, the worst thing that can happen here is a coup. It's like, well, I mean, a lot of bad things can probably happen with the U.S. election, but a coup is probably not one of them. Um, at least, you know, that is that is the Thai perspective as someone who's lived through a number of coups. Made, would you agree? Uh, yeah, it's 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 kind of a kind of a con confusing for me uh, to see that uh, uh, people talking about coup in the United States. I agree with uh, Jasmine that this is a more of a <clears throat> constitutional coup by the, the the Supreme Court, especially. But I don't think that's easy. I think I think it's more of a political rhetoric uh, on both sides, you know. <clears throat> to try to um, to raise fear, not only among Republicans that we know that they are doing this uh, over and over again, but also among Democrats, uh, it just to increase the turnout, and also the lot of talk about the the problem in voting, the problem in counting. I don't think, yeah, it's it's very very hard because uh, you know. For example, in counting, uh, as far as I, from a couple of uh, uh, presidential elections that I follow, as long as you, as soon as you got uh, 
50%, the Associated Press will announce that their prediction that this is the winner because it it, it get the vote more than 50% or or the majority that that the opponents wouldn't uh, couldn't catch up uh, anymore. So that kind of things uh, you don't need to wait until 100% of the vote is counting, but you just need to get a uh, uh, 50 plus one percent and then you got so there's a little bit a lot of uh, uh, politics in play here uh, I think just the coup the talk of the coup I think it's more of the to make people to drive the turnout uh, bigger and bigger to create that uh, sense of emergency if, if not fear uh, to the people I think that's how I look at it because, you know, the original concept of the coup is just the military jump in and take over the power. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know, but, but, but that's my take on that. Yeah. Yeah, the best is a kind of stretching of the concept. Right. 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 And mm-hmm. I did think, though, that it was amazing that when the um, International Crisis Group last week released a report, saying you know here are these risk factors and um we need to to send a warning of the potential for political violence in the u.s and um you know as we would for any country with these risk factors with quite i think sensible recommendations for what uh should be done to mitigate the risks like you know they called for foreign leaders not to prematurely endorse one candidate or another and and that kind of thing but it was just um really remarkable to see that applied to the US but rightly I think yeah and also I'll, I think if, if you if you look at the US history uh, for example riot is not really uh, uh, strange things to to the US you know you have the, the situation is worse in 68 I guess and also during the civil rights movement and before that and uh, you have lynching you have you have Af- you have everything in there you know it happens over and over and over again and then people just forget it and then a few years uh, a few years later it come up again uh, I don't know whether just means uh, uh, familiar but I think I think you do you if you you think you you were born in the US not like my not like me but uh, you know the Korean and black people in Los Angeles that's quite a big riot I guess uh, yeah that ethnic stripes and and uh, people are looting people are killing each other it just you know it's America they 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 just get used to that so uh, they also get used to how they uh, they are very very good at at, at employing uh, the fear to make people uh, act according to their own interests especially the politician yeah I'll just jump in to say um, no I didn't actually grow up in the US I grew up in Thailand but went to college in the US but I think that your point was exactly right which is you know a lot of this talk seems to be oriented around driving out the vote and driving out turnout, which, um, you know, in and of itself is a worthy goal, but obviously changes the dynamic of political discussion for now. Um, I think, you know, the key thing here is that 
as Madhuri said, racial tensions in the United States have been a consistent theme of politics there. Um, no more so now than it was in 2008. Uh, but, you know, when you look at that from a Thai perspective, actually, the fascinating thing is that you have a lot more people willing out, willing to speak out about Black Lives Matter than people willing to speak out about the pro-democracy protests, especially in sort of more conservative or elite quarters. And that's been one big criticism of the protests here, and I think also the protests in Hong Kong, is that you have these um, elites who are relatively untouched by the power structures, who are so willing to provide their solidarity for issues like racial rights in the United States, and yet really unwilling to learn about um, the protests taking place in their own backyard. And so there always is going to be that global local dynamic that is difficult for small countries like Thailand to contend with. Well, Jasmine, it's been fascinating to, to have you on the podcast and to get your perspective on on all of this. Uh, where can people uh, follow you and, and keep up with your latest articles and whatever else it is you're producing and writing? Yeah, so I write for the Thai Inquirer, so you can always find me there, a great uh, online Thai magazine that is currently covering the protests every day. So please follow the Thai Inquirer. And uh, you can also find me on Twitter, where I occasionally post.